Familiarity breeds contempt. This proverb captures how an extensive knowledge or a close association with someone or something often leads us to have a loss of respect for them or it. I think the truth of this proverb is borne out in a few ways, uh, one of which is in the way that we consume media. If you want to think about movies, perhaps, usually it goes, you see it the first time, uh, it's pretty good. You see it the second time, you're into it. The third time, less so. By the fourth time, you're just really not interested at all, unless, of course, that that movie is Star Wars. That never gets old. It's good every time. Uh, If we're going to be friends, you need to see it. If you haven't seen it, don't tell me until after you have. Um, It'll actually help you with your listening to my sermon. So many illustrations. But the truth is that movies, they get old. They get stale. They they get boring. I think the same thing happens with music, right? Uh, There's the number one song goes to the top of the charts, and then we hear it a hundred times, and then we're done with it and almost have kind of a disdain for it. We're sick and tired of that same song on repeat. The the one that comes to my mind when I think of, you know, like the one-hit wonders is the Macarena. Do you all know that one? Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. There's a little dance that goes with it. Yeah. When I was a teenager, that was kind of cool, I guess. Looking back now, if you talk about with my buddies, you can't find anybody that admits to to liking it. Somebody must have, right? (laughs) Made it to number one and stayed there for a long time. Now we're we're sick of it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 39. It's going to be our text this morning. And this is Mark's account of Jesus' death. And my fear is that many of you, like me, have at times allowed this exhilarating, this shocking, this most horrifying of passages to become too familiar. We've allowed it to become boring. I fear that we, as Christians, are, are all too often guilty of taming the cross of Christ, of allowing it to become common, ordinary. It's a piece of jewelry we wear around our necks, a story we've heard many times, one that we've gotten bored with. Friends, the cross is not common. Crucifixion was the cruelest, most painful, most humiliating form of capital punishment in the ancient world. And Rome had perfected the technique to ensure maximum suffering. The shame of such a death was so great that the Roman orator Cicero said, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The mere mention of a cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen. 2,000 years of church history have unfortunately domesticated and sanitized the cross for modern persons. The horror is gone. As we work through this pericope together this morning, my hope is that we would feel the horror of the cross and that we would be melted by what Jesus was accomplishing there for us. The main idea of our text this morning is that Jesus does not save himself so that he can save others. And in response to that, I want to exhort you, 
to see and believe, to see and savor this great king. Four parts this morning. Uh, We'll see Jesus rejected by Gentiles in the form of Roman soldiers. We'll see Jesus rejected by Jews in the form of the religious leaders. Then we'll see Jesus forsaken by God. And then we'll see how Jesus guarantees redemption for believers. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we don't have to, that I don't have to think up sermons, but that your word is sufficient for us, that it never returns void, and that through it you've always created your people. You've always accomplished miracles. Father, I pray that you would create within us all a, a deep affection for you this morning, that you would give us a new appreciation of the gospel, that you would summon us to truly follow you, to repent and believe, change our lives so that we might better honor you and give you the worship that you are due. Lord, we thank you for this privilege of hearing your word. We know that we will be responsible for how we respond to it. We pray that we will meet you with a smile knowing that we heard and believed. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm actually going to start at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus' physical suffering starts with scourging. And James Edwards writes of this in his commentary. As a prelude to crucifixion, Josephus says that the prisoner was stripped and bound to a post and beaten with a leather, white weather, with a leather whip woven with bits of bone and metal. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed. The scourging lacerated and stripped the flesh often exposing bones and entrails. One of its purposes was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion. But scourging was so brutal that some prisoners died before reaching the cross. Depending on the severity of the flogging beforehand, some victims survived on crosses several days since no major arteries were severed. Death came not by blood loss, but from shock or exhaustion, asphyxia, or heart failure, or a combination of the above. Crucifixion was a ghastly form of death, excruciatingly painful, prolonged, and socially degrading. The thought that God's Messiah could come and suffer on a cross of shame, it was so scandalous that some 25 years later, Paul confessed that the preaching of a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The ignominious death of Jesus is so shameful, it's so grisly, it's so dreadful that it is an impediment to belief. It hinders people from believing because it's so scandalous. And yet at the same time, this cross of shame helps us to verify the authenticity of the gospel. You see, in the first century, there existed plenty of hero stories. They would face a great crisis, the hero in the story, but then escape from that crisis just in the nick of time. 
But see, the story of Jesus, it's not a made-up hero story from the first century. It's a history. The point is, is that if the story of Christ were made up, if it were fabricated, Jesus would escape his death. And as a result of his escape, everyone would follow his teaching. That's how hero stories worked at this time, after all. And so it's at this point when Pilate orders the scourging of Jesus that we would expect, if this were your typical first century hero story, we would expect him to turn his eyes into the hills after hearing a trumpet call to see his disciples mounted on horses. They were lost, but now they were loyal and being revitalized, racing to his rescue. But Jesus sees nothing. Here's nothing. He will not escape. No one will show up to usher him to safety. He will die. And it is this death that he utilizes in order to procure salvation for us. It's this death that causes many to shake their heads in disbelief. Because Jesus does not fit their description of what a Messiah king would look like. He is a monarch that acts as a suffering servant and dies on a cross. Impossible foolishness. True. No relief came for Jesus. He was scourged. Verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. After Jesus is bloodied from a thorough whipping the soldiers responsible for leading him to the place of the skull force him to participate in a mock coronation ceremony. They all gather around to pay homage to the king of the Jews. A king must be clothed in the finest of colors, they smirk. And every king must have a crown. This one is perfect for you. Never mind that it may pierce your skin and crush your brow. Only you are fit to wear it. Don't worry about the disfigurement it's causing to your face. And so they placed a crown made of thorns upon Jesus' brow, the very representation of man's curse, as they continued. Hail, King of the Jews! Oh, and what king doesn't have a scepter? We must find you one. They snicker as they blast him with a reed and anoint him with their saliva. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. He who wraps himself in light is given over to darkness. He who clothes himself in brilliant colors and majesty is stuffed into blood-soaked garments and forced to carry the beam that will be affixed to the pole that will become his cross. Soon, though, Jesus' Roman escort recognizes that he is too weak for the task of carrying his crossbeam. 
And they compel a man to become a disciple of Jesus, Simon of Cyrene. He will be the first to literally fulfill Jesus' command in chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and of Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. The mention of Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, is actually really interesting, and it leads many to believe that this family becomes Christians as a result of this event, especially because uh, Mark is writing to the church at Rome, and so the purpose of mentioning Alexander and Rufus by name is because these people would, oh, Alexander and Rufus, we know them, they're part of the church, and additionally, Paul greets Rufus at the end of his letter to the Romans, and, and those are certainly interesting things to think about. But as I was looking at this text and saw Simon the Cyrene picking up the crossbeam and and following Jesus, carrying it for him, I I thought the more interesting question to ask was this. I see that Simon the Cyrene is here, but where is Simon Peter? And where is he? Where is the one who said he would die with Jesus? Where is the one who said he would not fall away? Why isn't he there? carry Jesus' cross behind him as he said he would. He's nowhere to be found. Jesus suffers alone. He is despised and rejected. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but, but he did not take it. Golgotha, is a, it's a place outside of the city, and it's along a public highway and situated with a, a distinct purpose. The Romans wanted to kind of put up a flag to the world that showed people what would happen if you opposed them. And so it's here, outside the city, that Jesus would die. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And this is an odd detail to include. It's in the middle of ushering Jesus to be crucified. A poker game breaks out over who will get his clothing. You wonder why this detail? If you think back to just earlier this morning when we read Psalm 22 together, you'll recall verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I'll never forget the first time I came across Psalm 22, by the way. Uh, Seeing the connection between Jesus and that psalm that foretold of his death, uh, you know, as a newer Christian, I thought, this is a misprint of some type. This is what Jesus says in the New Testament. They, they, They must have this backwards. It really is a thrilling thing to see how the whole Bible tells the same story about who Jesus is and what he comes to do. Mark here includes the detail, I think, to point us back to that prophecy and make sure that there is not any confusion about who Jesus is and what he's accomplishing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. His death is securing the very promises of God for his people. He's being killed according to the will of God. I think Calvin captures something of the theological import when he speaks about Jesus' clothing. This is what he says. The evangelists portray the Son of God as stripped of his clothes, that we may know the wealth gained for us by his nakedness. 
for it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his son to be stripped that we should appear freely with the angels in the garments of his righteousness in the fullness of all good things. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Indeed, James and John had no idea what they had asked when they requested to sit at Jesus' right and his left when he was in glory. Jesus is hung with criminals and counted as a rebel just as Isaiah foretold. He is a worm and not a man. He's completely rejected. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others! but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is a picture of Jesus' utter rejection. He's He's rejected by soldier and scribe, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone is rejecting Jesus. It's also important to to point out, I think, that Mark and the other gospel authors are always far more concerned with the spiritual suffering of Jesus, more concerned with that than the physical suffering. That's why we see this huge emphasis on the mockery that's taking place. The ridicule of Jesus is total, and the voices of the crowd almost merge into one voice. You have the passers-by, you have the chief priests and the scribes, and you have the Roman soldiers all mocking Jesus, all scorning him. Together, the crowd taunts the dying man who dies in the place of us dying men. And I think if you're perceptive, you'll see your face in that crowd and hear your own voice among the commotion. The ignorance of those hurling insults upon Jesus is a bit appalling. They say to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. One wishes that Jesus would answer, I am destroying the temple and I will build it in my resurrection. The temple I spoke of was my body. It would be broken so that you no longer had to go to a building to have access to the Father. I am destroying the temple and rebuilding it for you. Others call to him. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And the religious leaders echo those sentiments. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. One wishes Jesus would cry out, Exactly! He could not save both himself and others. It is, as he said, In chapter 10, the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Throughout this chapter, we've seen Mark put Christological confessions in the mouths of Jesus' enemies, 
We've heard the chief priests and Pilate alike say, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And now we hear his enemies proclaim the very gospel in a phrase. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Don't miss how bone-chilling this actually is. It reveals a terrible truth about the religious leaders and about us. Our sin is so deep that we can speak the truth and be blind to it. Quick aside of application here. People, I think we have a penchant for self-deception. And we all are, most of the time, unaware of our worst and most of our sins. It's one of the many reasons Jesus puts us together in the church. So we can live life together, help one another pursue holiness, show one another our blind spots. Not only do the religious leaders here, though, unknowingly speak truth, they outright lie. Look again at verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Never mind that they're actually making themselves guilty of blasphemy, which is the crime that they condemned Jesus for. But notice their lie and their demand. Their demand is, come down from the cross and we will see and believe. Friends, this simply is not true. They've seen Jesus do the miraculous. Jesus has healed leprosy. He's healed a paralytic. He's healed a woman with a blood issue. He has raised the dead. He has stilled a storm. He has walked on water. He has multiplied a few loaves and fish to feed 5,000. He has healed the blind. He has healed the deaf. He has been transfigured. Yet those demanding he perform a miracle now by coming down from the cross, they, they do not believe and they will not. You see, it is as James Edwards writes, the very demand for a sign here, as in chapter 8, is evidence of unbelief. Faith is not the result of signs and miracles, but the condition for them. Jesus never does miracles in order to bring about faith, but always in response to faith. Those demanding that Jesus come down from the cross so that they might see and believe, They lie. Another miracle will not cause faith to bloom within them. Because ultimately, the problem of those who reject Jesus, it's not intellectual. It's not a lack of evidence. I mean, sure, there are questions. You have questions. I have questions. But that's not the reason people don't believe. The real reason for unbelief is not intellectual problems, but a moral problem. They do not believe because they do not want to. They don't want to believe what God has said about himself. This reality plays itself out in the lives of the chief priests and the scribes. They witness Jesus' greatest miracles, his death and his resurrection. We could call his death a non-miracle miracle because he performs it by refusing to supernaturally free himself from the situation. Isn't that amazing? He stays on the cross. The religious leaders not only witness miracles of Jesus, but oddly enough, they they have their demand met in a way. 
and they still refuse to believe. I mean, eventually Jesus does come down from the cross after dying for others. And he raises from the grave. He resurrects to prove his person and his power. Yet they still do not believe. After Jesus is risen, Matthew tells us in, in chapter 28 of his gospel, someone comes to tell the chief priests and the scribes what has happened. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Even though they experienced the signs and wonders of Jesus, they refuse to believe it and pay others hush money so that no one else will believe it either. Those who reject Jesus refuse to believe, not because of evidence, but in spite of it. Because ultimately, the reason for their unbelief is not intellectual, but moral. Put simply, people do not believe because they do not want to. This is the nature of sin. We do not believe God and instead believe in ourselves. It was the case with Adam, it's the case with us. The taunting demand of the chief priests and the scribes is an outright lie. They will not see and believe because they do not want to. What about you? What demands are you making of God? Non-Christian, what are you waiting for God to do before you will believe? Miracles don't happen to bring about faith, but in response to faith. Your unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's a, it's a moral one. Jesus is despised and rejected. But his suffering, though extreme, is only burgeoning. It's only beginning. The most severe part of Jesus' torment is yet to come. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's from about noon to 3 o'clock. So 1,200 to 1,500 for you military folk. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 should sound familiar again. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The whole business here of bystanders thinking Jesus is calling Elijah, it seems a little odd, but it fits with Jewish superstitions at the time. Uh, Edwards comments again, Popular Judaism believed that Elijah had been taken bodily into heaven without dying. That's in accord with 2 Kings chapter 2. And that he would return, this is kind of the superstitious part, he would return in times of crisis to protect and rescue the righteous. And so the bystanders invoke the name of Elijah at Jesus' crucifixion, perhaps because they mistake Jesus' call to God, which is Eloi, for a call or an appeal to Elijah, which is Eli both in Aramaic 
In other words, they, they confuse Eloi with a lie. And so they think that Jesus is calling out to Elijah rather than God because they bought into this idea that Elijah is going to come and rescue a good guy like Jesus. At any rate, it's right after Jesus cries out these words of Psalm 22 that he's given something to drink. John's gospel sheds some light on this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. They give Jesus a last sip of wine, and he cries out and dies. Mark just records that he cries out, but what he cries out is almost assuredly the words, It is finished, as is recorded by John. I mean, try to get in your mind how dreadful this scene is try to help just a little bit. Uh, Some of you have had the experience of being with a loved one as they slowly deteriorate and die. You've sat by their their bedside and given them uh, ice cream and yogurt, helped them to eat it, given them a glass of water at first, and then as time passes, uh, water from a straw. Then you know that there comes a time where uh, they can no longer drink from the straw or even eat yogurt and ice cream. And so you give them the ice chips to, to quench their thirst. And then there's that time at the very end, as, as the darkness of death is crawling up their bedposts, that the only thing they can bear to take in is water from that little sponge that you have on the end of a stick. And you, and you wet it, you dip it in the water, and then you press it to their lips. And this is what's happening at Calvary. Jesus is dying. They're his last breath. But instead of being surrounded by friends and family, he's surrounded by his adversaries. It is a dreadful scene. It's not a loved one who presses the sponge to Jesus' lips at the end, but an enemy that he so loves, one that he dies for. As darkness is closing in on Jesus, we discover that it's more than just death that Jesus is dealing with here. That he's dealing with the very judgment of God against all sin. Jesus is going into the unknowable and the unsurvivable. He will be forsaken by God. He is punished as if he were all the sin that he was bearing. Jesus must do this because God is holy and can tolerate no wrong, and he must deal with evil. He must do this because God will accept a substitute on behalf of sinners. I mean, all the Old Testament points us to this fact. The blood of animals does not cleanse, but foreshadows the blood that does cleanse. The blood of Jesus, who is the only one qualified to be the substitute for man's sin. Jesus must bear sin and be forsaken because he loves us. We deserve death. God could rightly have ended evil by ending us with the blink of an eye or a flick of his finger. But instead, he loved us, took on flesh, came to earth for this hour. 
Yeah, John 3.16 sums it up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is Jesus' desire to bring us into the marvelous light as he is in the light that drives him into the darkness. He takes the darkness of God's judgment so that we can have the light and life of God's favor. So we can see and believe. The darkness of verse 33, I mean, it's not due to natural phenomenon. The Passover takes place during a full moon, so it's not because of an eclipse. It's also the wet season, so it's not because of some sort of dust storm. It is the result of God's action. It is a picture of the divine displeasure God has with sin as he pours out his wrath upon the sun. After all, we've seen darkness as God's judgment before, right? Actually, during the same week, Passover. I think the supreme example of darkness coming over Egypt is the ninth plague. Darkness sets over the land. It's the penultimate plague before the death of the firstborn at the Passover. Just as darkness came before the slaughtering of lambs in order to spare those who had faith in God's provision from his right judgment then, so too now darkness comes before the slaughtering of the lamb who dies in the place of those who put their faith in him. Jesus dies forsaken by God in order to redeem us. The extent of his love for us can only be measured by the depths to which he went to save us. Tim Keller writes, If after a Sunday service, one of my members comes up to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, I'll feel pretty bad. But if today my wife comes up to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, well, that's a lot worse. You see, the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of the loss. This forsakenness experienced by Jesus, this loss, was between the Father and the Son, who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect. And Jesus was losing it. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question. And the answer is this. For you. For me. For us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we will never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell on him. That's what's happening at the cross. Jesus is being unmade so we can be made new. The cross is the shape of God's love for us. The cross is what Jesus does to guarantee redemption for those who will see and believe. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
As the last breath of Jesus falls off his lips, the curtain of the temple is torn in half. This is divine vandalism. It's ripe with meaning. I mean, the temple curtain is not cheap, right? It's not like curtains I had in college, which were usually just sheets from my bed, right? This is a substantial curtain. It's, it's almost substantial enough to be like a wall. And it, it would have been near impossible to tear. If you ever tried to tear those, like maybe during service, you get a, try to get a little snack, take it out of your purse and try to get that wrapper open, it just won't come. It's near impossible to tear open. That, that's what this curtain is. It's, you can't rip it apart. This curtain separates the holy of holies, where God's very presence dwelled from the rest of the temple. It separated the people from the presence of God. And remember that only the holiest man, the high priest, from the holiest nation, the Jews, could enter the Holy of Holies. And only once a year, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. And when he entered, he had to bring a blood sacrifice, an atonement for sins. The curtain said loudly and clearly that it is impossible for anyone sinful to come into God's presence. At the moment of Jesus' death, this massive curtain was ripped open. The tear was from top to bottom just to make clear who did it. This was God's way of saying, this is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The way is now open to approach me. Now that Jesus has died, anybody who believes in him can connect with God. The tearing of the curtain by the hand of God signifies that no longer does sin separate those who trust in God's Son from God's presence. Jesus' substitutionary death makes intimate relationship with God possible for those who will respond to his call to exercise faith by seeing and believing in him. Even a Roman centurion. And when the centurion, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is something. This is something here. The centurion pronounces Jesus as the Son of God. The Son of God is Mark's load-bearing Christological title, which until this moment has remained unconfessed by any human being. In Mark's gospel, nobody calls Jesus the Son of God until this point. And so this is where Mark has been taking us since chapter 1, verse 1, where he said, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the first person to rightly confess his divine identity is this centurion. And it's evoked not by one of Jesus' miracles, but by Jesus' suffering. The fact that Jesus' death results in this confession alerts us to the uniqueness of his death. I mean, the centurion kills for a living, right? This is nine to five. He'll eat a sandwich and stick a spear in your side at the same time. Death doesn't bother him. Used to it. But for some reason, when Jesus dies, the centurion exclaims, truly this man was the son of God. Though his knowledge of Jesus is incomplete, Mark records his testimony as an indication of his faith. The point being that the curtain is torn and anybody who believes, even a Roman centurion, anybody who believes in Jesus can enjoy relationship with God. Mark makes the point plain and clear. 
by putting our attention on this man and his confession. He's an unlikely convert, but God grasps hold of his heart and amidst the horrific darkness of the cross enables him to behold the beauty of Jesus. The sinner witnesses Jesus' death and believes in him as the Son of God. This is the high point in Mark's gospel. This is who Jesus is. The one who saves not himself so that he can save you and I. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who dies in the place of sinful humanity and offers salvation to any who will see and believe in him. Concisely, we can learn two wonderful truths from all of this. We are great sinners, and Jesus is a great Savior. Jesus died for us. He rose from the dead, proving his person and his power, so that by faith in him we can be united to him, that his death would become our death and his life can become our life, so that we can look forward to eternal life with God and with his people, with one another. Eternal joy and peace. True, deep, lasting satisfaction. And he's been so good to us that we have even a foretaste of it now. As we prepare to gather around the table and have the true Thanksgiving meal this morning. Church, do not let the cross become common. Don't lose affection for Jesus. Don't let the familiarity you have with the cross breed contempt. But instead, replace familiarity with intimacy. See and believe. See and savor Jesus. Do not let the song of the gospel become a one-hit wonder like the Macarena. Let the song of the gospel play on repeat in your heart song like like this one before the throne of god above i have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me my name is graven on his hands my name is written on his heart i know that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me thence depart when satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward i look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior and my God. This is the gospel. And if it doesn't move you, I don't know what will. He died for you. He took the hell you deserved so that you can have heaven. He is worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our very lives. 
called that we would turn from our sin and a life of dissatisfaction and believe in Him. My prayer for us this morning is that we would see and believe in this wonderful Savior. That we would see and savor Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is only one person you've ever treated worse than he deserved. And that it was your own son given in our place. And as we gather around your table now to celebrate a meal that causes us to look backwards to the cross and consider the death of Christ and what our salvation cost, as well as look forward to that day where you will come and make everything sad untrue. We ask that you would make our hearts ready. Father, we confess that we are sinners. We're not perfect. We are broken people, desperately in need of your grace. So, Father, pour out your grace and mercy on us now as we come to eat and drink to your death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and ultimately your return. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have in you.